And so I find this personally painful. So let's hear God's word together. Mark 15. Pilate ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, called the Praetorium, and called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head. Then they saluted him and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a reed stick, spit on him, and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And this is God's word for us. And we are indeed the people of God. So it's about 8 o'clock in the morning. About 8 o'clock in the morning on Friday. And Jesus is standing trial before Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And you'll remember from last week that the trial is taking place up here at the Antonio Fortress. You can see that on your screen. It was located right next to the temple complex right here. Now, the fortress was built by King Herod, by King Herod. And uh, it was built in order to house the temple guards who provided security and kept order there on the temple grounds. It was also the place where Pontius Pilate lived during the time that he was in Jerusalem. You'll also note that the, from last week, that the trial took place. Jesus was standing on the stone pavement, according to the Gospel of John. It's also called the Lithostrotus. You can see it right here. Can you imagine that you are looking at the stones, the place where our Lord stood as the crowd was shouting, crucify him, and as Pilate washed his hands and turned him over to the guards for execution. Now, before I go any further, I need to say once again that I find this passage incredibly painful, personally. You know, had, had the had the torture and humiliation taken place uh, to a complete stranger, I would still find it disturbing and uh, disgusting and inhumane. But knowing that this took place uh, to Jesus, whom I know personally as my friend and my Lord and my Savior, 
I find this not only personally painful, but sickening. So I think the question is, uh, why talk about it? I mean, why in the world would we talk about such a thing? Well, I'll tell you why. In fact, we have to talk about it. We have to talk about it because it's a part of your salvation story. And it's a part of my salvation story. You know, it vividly illustrates the depth of our sin and our human depravity. It illustrates what you and I are capable of doing, how we are capable of behaving, and how we are far from loving God and loving others and living out the gospel life. So, what do the scriptures teach us? Well, I can say it this way. What took place over the next few hours differs from gospel to gospel. And here's why. You know, as Christians, and I want us to understand this, as Christians, we believe that the scripture is is inspired by the Holy Spirit and written by human authors. But what that does not mean, and I, I want to make sure that we understand this, what it doesn't mean is that the Holy Spirit did not take the humanness away from the gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all still wrote from their human perspective. They wrote from their understanding. They wrote from the way they understood it. Listen, they wrote what they believed to be important. And so we have the Gospels that differ, but when you put them all together, it shows us what the picture is. It gives us the complete picture of what our Lord endured in order for you and for me to know his great love, in order for us to experience the forgiveness and the salvation that he has come to give. <clears throat> so in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke omits the mockery and the flogging uh, Jesus endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. Uh, but yet it is only the Gospel of Luke that tells us that Pilate sent Jesus back to King Herod in order to stand trial before him. And King Herod couldn't find any reason to execute him, so he sent him back to Pilate. And uh, Herod questioned Jesus, mocked him, placed a royal robe on him, sent him back to Pilate. Then there's the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is uh, the setting, or was used for Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie, and tells us that, that Pilate had Jesus flogged before he pronounced a verdict. That is, hoping that if he was to, to flog him and then present to the crowd, uh, crowd a beaten, bruised, and bloody Jesus. It might persuade the crowd to not to press for a crucifixion, not to press for an execution. 
So the Roman soldiers flogged Jesus. They put a crown of thorns upon his head. They put a purple robe to, to uh, symbolize royalty. And then they mocked Jesus as the king of the Jews. And Pilate presented a humiliated, bloodied Jesus to the crowd as they continued to call for the execution. That's the Gospel of John. Then the Gospel of Matthew and Mark both tell us that, that after Pilate pronounced sentence, that Jesus was flogged and then taken to his headquarters where the soldiers mocked and humiliated him before taking him to be crucified. So it was during the time of Jesus that flogging was a common punishment. Flogging, what is it? It's the methodical whipping of the human body with a, a rod or a switch or a cat of nine tails. It was used not only by the Romans, but it was also used by the Jews. And even in our own history, our own history right here in America, uh, some states flogged their prisoners with regularity. Slaves in the South were routinely flogged. And even our own military flogged their own soldiers during the Revolutionary War. And although flogging is not used any longer by Western nations, flogging is still prescribed by Sharia law and is used in Muslim nations. It's the prescribed punishment for offenses including fornication, alcohol use, and slander. In fact, just a couple of years ago, Indonesia made international news when they flogged a female for, and here's what she was charged for, she was charged for being in close proximity to a man who was not her husband at a hotel, end quote. That was her charge, and she was flogged. In the case of Jesus, he was also flogged by Roman soldiers. What they did was they bound his hands. We know that scripture teaches us this. And then they would place his hands over what you can see here is a whipping post. It doesn't say that in the scripture, but we know that to be true because we know history. And we've, uh, we see that taking place uh, throughout history, even during that time. And there were guards who specialized in the art of flogging, striking with a cat of nine tails. In Jesus' case, the cat of nine tails that you see right here had tied on the ends of each of these nine strands that came off of the cat of nine tails. Uh, a, a lead ball, a small piece of lead was tied to the end for the purpose of not only bruising the skin, but also being able to tear it open, to dig into the skin as it uh, hit Jesus back. And it, in some cases, flogging was done not simply with lead, but either with pieces of stone, little small pieces of metal, or even 
little century of glass. Sebius, who says that Roman flogging often, and here's the quote, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and tendons and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. Sometimes, we know this in fact from history, sometimes the accused who would be beaten with the and whipped with the cat of nine tails who had been flogged would actually die of the flogging even before the execution of the cross. Now, I must say that that is the exception rather than the rule because for the Romans, they did not want the accused to die during the flogging. They, they wanted to, to get them to the point of where they could just have enough strength left to carry the cross beam on their back to the place of execution and then be nailed to the cross. That's what they wanted. And so for the Romans, unfortunately, some of the accused died before they ever got there. You know, the guards who, who uh, in fact, 700 years before even Isaiah wrote this, look what he said. He said, I offered my back to those who beat me and my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mockery and spitting. 700 years before Jesus was ever crucified, Isaiah wrote those words. Can't you imagine that those words just echoed through Jesus' mind? And I also find it fascinating that, that we find no indication here that Jesus pled for mercy. He didn't ask him to stop. He didn't plead for them not to hit him, which I believe probably angered the guards even more, which probably caused the guards to flog him with greater zeal. And if that physical torture wasn't enough, the guards thoroughly belittled him, completely humiliated him in order to try to break his spirit. Look here at Mark 15, check this out, it says, the soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters called the Praetorium and called out the entire regiment. Look at that, called out the entire regiment. You know how large a regiment was? A Roman regiment was somewhere between 300 and 600, just depending on the reg regiment, 300 and 600 soldiers calling out the entire regiment. Do you know why? The Romans called out the entire regiment in order to have a little more fun with Jesus. To embarrass him more, to humiliate him more. An entire regiment called out of the fortress to come and humiliate this so-called king of the Jews. Matthew tells us that they stripped him naked, leaving him exposed and bloodied before hundreds of soldiers with their swords, with their shields, with their armor. 
This man claims to be king of the Jews, they said. So they brought out a purple robe to put on his back. Then someone thought they needed, he needed a crown. So they found a, a, a thorn bush, pulled off the, a few strands of uh, the bush and wove them and twisted them together and then shoved that crown of thorns on his head while the thorns are digging into his brow. And then they found a stick and hit him on the head so the thorns dug in even deeper. And then, once they have finished having their playtime with Jesus, calling out, all hail king of the Jews, they presented a condemned man to the entire crowd. Say, what this king needs is a scepter. And they found a reed stick and placed it in his hands to pay homage to their condemned king. They passed by him. Some spit in his face. Others took their fist and jabbed him, punched him in the face, shouting, Hail, King of the Jews! You know, I think we need to pause here for a moment. The picture of this cruel and inhumane treatment of my friend, my Savior, and my Lord makes me sick. I'm embarrassed to tell you that it was during this time during Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ movie that I had to walk out of the theater. I just couldn't stand to watch it. And as much as I would like to skip over this part of the story, as much as I would like to pretend that it didn't exist, as much as I would like to have, been, have simply walked out of the, the theater and believed that it could never have happened, it did happen. And we're not watching something that's fictional. We're watching fact. And the reason we need to pause here as we look at this picture is because this reminds us of what quote-unquote good people are capable of. It reminds us of what good people did to God when he took on human flesh and walked among us to teach us how to live and how to love, to teach us and show us and, and, and purchase a way for us to have eternity with his heavenly father. Now, you look at this picture and you think, what a weak and bloody mess Jesus was. And the reality is, I want, when you look at this picture, don't be fooled, folks. Don't be fooled. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and destroy the world and set him free. He could have gone out of there. He could have walked right through the crowd and they couldn't have touched him, but he didn't do it. 
He didn't do it because he knew that this was the only way that you and I could have eternity. That we could, the only way that we could have forgiveness of our sin, the only way that we can have eternal life, the only way that we can have a home in heaven. Instead, he endured the, 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 the torture. He endured the humiliation. He endured the mocking so that all who come after him might know something about the human condition and about the costliness of your salvation and mine. And so the question this raises, at least in my mind, is why? I mean, why did the soldiers do such things? Why did they torture him? Why did they humiliate him? This man loved the people. He loved the lost. He, he healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He preached the good news of God. He preached God's good news. And yes, it is absolutely true that he challenged the status quo. He challenged the Pharisees. He challenged the Sadducees. He challenged King Herod. He did. He upset the status quo in the temple. You know why? Because he was pointing out their hypocrisy. That's what he did. He pointed out their hypocrisy, and they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand the fact that, 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 that Jesus was pointing out to their followers just how corrupt they were. But still, what kind of people are so depraved? What kind of people are so hateful? What kind of people are so cruel that they would carry out such humiliation? Such depravity, such torture. It's, it's difficult to imagine. And in every single solitary part of this story, we have, we have people who, who did things to Jesus that were unimaginable. You know, and it wasn't just the Roman soldiers. It, it started with the Sanhedrin who broke law after law after law after law in order to get him in front of Pilate. It started with the good people, the religious people. The roar of the crowd screaming, crucify him. Pontius Pilate ordering his crucifixion. You know why? We learned it last week. What was it for? To pacify the crowd. Yeah. To pacify the crowd. His crucifixion was ordered by Pilate, the Roman governor. And then the, the Roman soldiers taking such great pleasure from tearing the flesh off of his bones, spitting on him, hitting him, mocking him, torturing him, belittling him in front of the crowd. Here's the question, were these people just evil? Were they just plain evil? Evil? 
You know, two weeks ago, I asked you to picture yourself as a member of the Sanhedrin, where not one member of that Sanhedrin, you know how many people were in the Sanhedrin? 71. Not one single person out of 71 spoke up and said, look, what we're doing is not right. What we're doing is against the law. What we're doing is breaking our own rules. Then, of course, last week, I asked you to imagine that you were Pontius Pilate. What would you do? You got a crowd shouting, crucify him. You can't find any reason to do it. He hasn't broken any law. He wasn't a threat to he wasn't a threat to the Jews and he wasn't a threat to the Romans. He was certainly in no shape to 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 uh, mount an insurrection. So why did Pontius Pilate wash his hands of the whole matter? He did it in order to pacify the crowd. So were the, the, everyone in the crowd, were they just evil? And, and what would you have done had you been Pontius Pilate when you had a crowd screaming? And, and they weren't just any crowd. Remember, these, these were the, the good people. They were the Sanhedrin. They were the religious people. What would you have done? You know, how is it? You know, well, you say, well, you know, Pastor John, that was just so long ago. It was just so long ago that, that you know, that kind of stuff, you know, just wouldn't happen these days. And I see, you know, it hasn't. Okay, that was 2,000 years ago. I got it. But, but what about in the 1940s, which hasn't been all that long ago? How is it that, that so many people in Germany turned a blind eye to what Hitler was doing and murdering uh, millions of Jews and millions of homosexuals and millions of gypsies. How is it that so many people said absolutely nothing to stop what, we, what they were doing? Were all those people simply evil? Think about that. You say, I would never participate in that. Well, you know what, during the Nuremberg trials, you know what the guards say? They said, I was just simply doing my job. And we all know that that, that kind of excuse doesn't even hold water. We still found those guards guilty, and they were guilty for having doing such atro uh, atrocious things. And so I ask you, what would you have done? You know, have you been to the Museum of, uh, of African American History downtown in, uh, in Washington? If you have, you've probably walked through this hall right here. This hall with uh, these... Uh, uh, these pieces of wood hanging from the ceiling. Do you know what this represents? This 
Paul right here, and each one of these uh, pillars here represent one of 4,400 known lynchings in the United States of America, of African Americans. And every one of these is a separate location, like a separate county within a state where lynchings took place of African Americans. So how could something like that take place? Was our entire nation simply evil? I mean, we'd like to think that cruelty and hate and humiliation and torture are all things of the past. We'd like to think that we Americans are far too enlightened to participate in such things. We'd like to think that we've learned a whole lot about our sin from the time of slavery to the time of Hitler's gas chambers. But my question is, have we? I mean, have we really learned this stuff? Have we really learned from our mistakes? You know, a, uh, a United States Department of Education suggests that 58% of children reported that someone has said something cruel or hateful to them online. Teens that are cyberbullied in school are twice as likely to commit suicide. Then, of course, there's the, the un, unexcusable actions that led to the death of George Floyd. And folks, listen to me. Even if you deserve to be arrested, you still deserve the right to breathe. There's no argument there. You can't argue with that. Even if you deserve to be arrested, you always deserve the right to breathe. You know, uh, some years ago, there was a study at, uh, at uh, Yale University, and they, the study invited people to come in off the street to participate in a scientific experiment. They were paid to sit in front of gauges and dials and deliver an electric shock to someone they could not see on the other side of the wall if they failed to answer the question that was asked correctly. So if they failed to answer correctly to the question that was asked, then the person was to deliver a, an ever-increasing electric shock, a little bit higher voltage for every answer that was wrong. Now, here's the thing. The people who were delivering the electric shock did not know that the equipment was not working. So not a single electric shock was given, yet whenever they pushed the button, the person on the other side would scream. Do you realize that 65%, 65% of the participants were willing to deliver a lethal dose of electricity to the people on the other side of the wall and some delivered 450 volts of electricity even after the screaming ended. What does that say about us? 
What does that say about the human condition? What does that say about the people that we are? I'm telling you what it says. It says that we stand in need of a savior. It says to us that, that left alone, sin left unchecked will ruin us. Ruin us as an individual, ruin us in our society, will ruin us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we absolutely must address our sinfulness. It was that sinfulness that put Jesus on the cross. It was for your sin and my sin that Jesus died. It was for your sin and my sin that he was mocked, that he was belittled, that he was beaten within an inch of his life. It was for your sin and my sin that he was beat with that cat of nine tails until the flesh was torn off his back. It was for your sin and my sin that he stood there when the soldiers came up to pull the hair right out of his beard and then to hit him in the face with their fist and then strike him on the head with a stick and spit in his eyes. And then drop on their knees and mock worship. All hail, king of the Jews. Folks, you and I, we need a Savior because our sinfulness will destroy us. Thank God He came. Thank God Jesus came. Listen to me, folks. Ordinary people, good people, good people like you and me, we are capable of horrible things. And we need to ask God to redeem us, to remake us in his image, and to forgive us for every time we turn our back on him. When we look the other way, And those times that we say, well, if it had been, if I'd have been there, I wouldn't have done those things. May God forgive us for even thinking that we would not have done those things. You know, you and I stand in need of a Savior. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus who died for you? Do you know this Jesus who, who stood there 
and was humiliated and tortured so that you can have eternal life? So that you can have heaven? So that you can be forgiven? So that you can have abundant life now and life eternal? Do you know this Jesus? If not, I invite you right now to get to know this one who has, who has given his life for you. And here's how you can do it. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer and make this prayer your own. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we recognize ourselves in Pontius Pilate. We see ourselves in the good people of the Sanhedrin. We recognize, Lord, that we stand in need of a Savior. That even those of us who are quote-unquote good have fallen short of your glory. And none of us deserve the eternal life and the gift of heaven. But we thank you, Lord, that you were willing to stop at nothing in order to bring us home. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that right now you would forgive me of my sinfulness and my collective part in standing by and doing nothing while you were being tortured and humiliated. I pray, Lord, that I may not stand by to see others treated like that either. So come, Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Restore me, Lord, in your image. And come and be my Lord and my Savior. I'm sorry, Lord, for all the ways that I've let you down and all the ways that I've let others down around me. I am grateful, Lord, that you hold none of that against me now, and that in you, I am now set free. Help me, Lord, to serve you and to love you more each day. And I pray all this, in the holy and precious and matchless name of Jesus. Amen.